Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of the Paradigm 132 Podcast, and I am your humble and gracious social shot horn. Today's show, which I feel depending on your interpretation and how you take it, may deem may be deemed to be controversial, or you may look at it and, and say, okay, this is something that's enlightening, and I want to go back, and I want to... Look at the information that you gave, and I want to establish my own idea about it. It may line up with yours, it may not, which, again, that's what I always want my listeners to do. Whenever I do a a podcast, I don't want you to seemingly get emotional about, you know, some of the things that I say, because these are just my opinions. I bring you know, information to support uh, my opinion. But one of the things about having a thought process is that you may interpret some information differently. You know, you may look at uh, information. One of the things I don't like to look at is statistics or information that may be subjective. Uh, I try to, to the best of my ability, do my due diligence, right? So, Tyler's episode is permanent underclass. I'm going to give you my reasoning for titling it this. I'm going to give um, the seemingly inception of that particular term as it pertains as it pertains to black or African Americans within this particular country. But We are probably roughly, I believe, 72 hours out or 72 hours past since the Asian hate crime bill passed through the Senate um, with a bipartisan vote of 94 to 1 with the um, senator from Missouri seemingly voting against it. Now, I got that from the New York Times. So seemingly what the... Asian crime bill, anti-hate Asian crime bill, some of the proponents of it are going to be investing or giving grants to law enforcement um, seemingly throughout the country so that they are they can train their officers so they can better identify discrimination against Asian Americans as well as set up a hotline in which uh, Asian Americans can call and report any discrimination that they felt that they have seemingly received. Now, on the surface, you look at it and you say, okay, well, there has been a seemingly uptick in <clears throat> violence towards and discrimination against Asian Americans in this country, seemingly on the heels of the COVID-19, which uh, the former president often referred to as the um, Kung Fu flu, which seemingly, if we look at it, that's seemingly a derogatory term to refer to uh, Asian Americans because it seemingly makes it a stereotype. But I'm not here to go in depth about the bill. Um, You can go to congress.gov and look at it in its entirety. What I'm here to talk about is an interview from 1995. 
1995. Now, if any of you know me, you know that two of the scholars that I hold in the highest and the highest of regard that have helped shape my thinking and have allowed for me to look at the world the way that it needs to be looked at and not looked at it from the way that it's presented. And those two scholars are Dr. Claude Anderson and Dr. Amos Wilson. But more so, I'm talking about an interview that Dr. Claude Anderson conducted in 1995. In 1995, Dr. Anderson, along with his team at the Harvest Institute, which he was the head of, they took data and they seemingly played the data out forward. And so what the data indicated that at the current rate that African-Americans were going in this country, that by the year 2013, we would seemingly be a permanent underclass within this particular country. Now, what does that mean? Well, in layman's terms, it's seemingly stating that we'll get the crumbs. If there's any crumbs left on the table, you know, we'll get the crumbs or our issues that we may have are not going to be in the forefront anymore. Issues that bother other groups are going to be in front of ours. Now, when I think about it, I'm thinking to myself, I said 1995, 1995, and projected it out to 2013. Wow, right? So some numbers that I have that I want to present that tie into this, and if you, again, interpret the information the way that I'm, I'm giving it out, you will understand how all of this plays a, plays a part. So one of the things that Dr. Anderson said was that seemingly African-Americans by 2013 would no longer be the majority minority within this country. We actually will go from second to fourth, which means that we would be behind the Hispanic population and we would be behind the Asian population, right? So he stated this in 1995, right? So... Seemingly, since we all know that census are done on 10-year intervals, he conducted an interview in 1995, so obviously the census from 1990 would be a, a reference point that we would be looking at. So the African-American population, as a percentage of the population in 1990, was 13% African-American, 9% Hispanic, and 2.8% Asian. Now, let's fast forward to 2010, right? Because I feel that, um, well, obviously, uh, statistics from 2000 are seemingly irrelevant. And also, we don't have the census reports back from 2020 yet. So, if we look at it from a time period, 1995 and the 1990 census correlate and seem seemingly that the projection that his group stated that 2013 would be a permanent underclass, so the 2010 census would be more of a good point of reference. So the 2010 census indicated that African Americans in this country represented 13.4% 
of the population. Hispanics bumped up to 19%, and Asians are at 2 not 2%, but at 6% of the population, right? So, another subject that I touched on in the previous podcast was the article that talked about that in the year 2050, that African Americans would have a net worth of $0, which basically means that African Americans' liabilities would far outweigh their assets to the point that very few would have net worths that stated that they had assets that outweighed their liabilities. So 2040, the percentage of the population would look as such. Hispanics are going to represent 30%. African Americans are going to go back down to 13%. And Asians within this particular country are going to represent 9%. So when we look at that, Okay, and based on what I stated prior to this, you said, okay, Rashad, Dr. Anderson said that we would be fourth. Okay, so if you're using the metric of percentage of population, we would still be third, right? Because the Asians are only going to be 6%, we're only 6% in 2010, and in 2040, they're going to be a representation of 9%, and we're still at 13 if you ask that question, good. So we're going to go to another set of numbers that are going to hopefully solidify this, right? So I said, okay, well, let's go to average age, right? Average age that um, these groups live. I excluded um, the <clears throat> white numbers because I don't feel that obviously they they are, you know, seemingly at the top. So I don't feel like you know, their population, obviously we know that their population is going to be on a decline, but just in case for the 2040, they're going to be down at 40% of the population by 2040, right? So the average age expectancy, African-Americans have an average age expectancy of 75, right? So this is where my top was blown off, figuratively. Hispanics have an average of 83 years old. And Asians have 87. Now, Hispanics are living longer on average. And they are have surpassed us as a majority minority within this country. And that trend is going is based on projections is going to continue to be such. OK, so that solidifies us in the number three spot right behind the Hispanics. So. These numbers that I'm about to to rattle off are going to solidify us in the fourth spot behind the Asians. So if Asians live on average to be 87, okay, that means that they have the ability on average to participate in more political elections than the average African-American, right? So that means that they will have seemingly older people that are eligible to vote that may have the influence on younger voters to do such, right? And also, I, up until I did my own research, I had always heard, okay, well, Asians don't really participate in the political space uh, as much as other groups, right? Okay, so I said, okay, well, 
I've heard that a multitude of times. Let me go research. So what my research showed me was that Asian Americans, first time Asian immigrants that come over here, a lot of them are on permanent green cards and work visas. And they don't necessarily have fully naturalized citizens, which a fully naturalized Asian immigrant, once they become fully naturalized, they have the ability to vote. So I want to say it was between 2006 or 2008 up into 2016, I believe is what the study said, that the percentage of Asian eligible voters jumped a whopping 131%. Right behind it, Hispanics at 115. African-Americans, 33%. So, Asians are living longer and they're getting more eligible voters due to them becoming more naturalized citizens within this particular country. So... And I feel that this major piece of legislation is Asian hate crime bill that passed through the Senate with seemingly no objections whatsoever. To me, put the proverbial nail in the coffin. Now, for a point of reference, 2013 was the second term of President Barack Obama. And that was the second year, 2013. And again, Dr. Anderson said that we would be a permanent underclass in 2013. Right. So another thing that is going on that seemingly puts the Asians in a, a, a position again to take third place. And I may could argue that they seemingly could be second place because as far as wealth within a household, Asians have more wealth per household than white Americans. Right. They don't have the population, which makes it more interesting because they have a smaller sample size. But that smaller sample size is amplified because they have a larger amount of wealth. Right. And another thing that is showing that Asians are getting ready to make a political push um, in a major way is that we saw in this past election that Andrew Yang ran for president. Billionaire. Let me not let me not gloss over that tech billionaire Andrew Yang ran for president. So seemingly like anything else, that's going to inspire others. And I see that he's he's looking to make a a bid at the governor of New York. Right. Don't know if he's going to be successful, but if indeed he is successful in his campaign in a state that has a large Asian population, New York, and it's going to set the stage. It's going to set the table. So another narrative that I see being playing, played out is that this, this Asian hate is coming from African-Americans, right? So going back to the New York Times article that I read, seemingly a lot of times when I read articles, I don't go to the comments, right? Because you can pretty much see what the comment's going to be. You're going to have some Asians or which I'm not even going to say Asians, right? Because I don't have any ability to decipher any ethnic background. But what you're going to have is you're going to have people that are in support. You're going to have people that aren't in support. 
You're going to have people that say it's not enough. You're going to have individuals that are going to bring up, you know, bring up their uh, seemingly talking point. And that's what you're going to have. But one particular comment, you know, caught me. And I said, okay, this is interesting. Because this particular comment contained an article from 2010. And the article was basically titled The Dirty Secret of Blacks and Asians in San Francisco. It's in the San Francisco gate. It was from 2010. And it talked about how a woman named Carol Moe participated in a survey that studied 300 armed robberies of Asians in the San Francisco area. And 85% of the perpetrators that were, you know, studied in this particular survey were of African-American descent. All right. So this is back in a 2008 article and we fast forward to 2021. And so the, the obviously what's going on in the media. And again, this is not to speak ill towards Asians or, or Hispanics or anything like that. That's why I said it just comes down to the way you interpret it. Some of you may interpret it, say you're attacking Asians or, or you are being a typical black person that wants to yell, woe is me. No, I want you to look at the information, take it, do with it what you please. I'm just here to give, you know, I'm just here to give it out. So we've heard that uh, Asian crimes are seemingly underreported at a at seemingly at a large clip, you know, for a lack of a better term. Now, one of the things in that particular article, again, it's in the San Francisco gate from 2010, Carol, um, Carol Moe, is that one of the Asian immigrants said that one of the things that she heard from one of her black neighbors was that African-Americans did all of the hard work to get all of these minority um, bills and legislation passed, did all the hard work, got none of the benefits, and Asians and other groups can come over here and reap the benefits of the hard work. Now, I haven't done an in-depth research about that. I've heard it, but again, a lot of times I like to go ahead and do my own research even you know, even though it may sound like something I want to attach myself to, but I want to do my own research a lot of times. So, but there are some African Americans I know that feel that way. That the '60s, which I feel like was the the height of the black experience that was bucking the system. A lot, you know, a lot was passed. But the, the, the one that sticks out, the one that is still mostly referred to today is the Voting Rights Act. Right. And obviously we have the, the civil rights, the civil rights bills of, you know, the 1960s. But the one that seemingly sticks out that we feel or at least many major or not even major, but just many politicians and people speak about is the voting rights. And the whole thing is, well, our ancestors died for us the right to vote. Our ancestors were beaten within an inch of their life, you know, seemingly to have the right to vote. And <clears throat> so that seems to be what, you know, what came from it. But if we look at it, you know, in, in, in a vacuum, 
I asked my wife this question. I said, honey, make sure, you know, make sure question. I said, you know, seemingly a multiple choice. If you had a choice to learn history, all right, these are these, these, this, this is the history you can learn. Would you choose to learn white history? And I'm speaking about history just exclusively, like, like you, like you just have to devote your time to learn this history. Would you want to learn white history, black history, Hispanic history, or Asian history? And she said, I want to learn black history. I want to, I want to learn more about my people. I said, okay, cool. I'm on the same boat. The reason I asked her that question is because what I feel is one of the things that other immigrant groups or other minority groups use against African Americans is, and which again is tied into the permanent underclass, is okay, y- y'all talk about wanting reparations, you talk about wanting land, and Dr. Claude Anderson is famous for saying that African Americans within this country own one half of 1% of $17 trillion worth of wealth within this particular country. One half of 1%, even though we have a trillion dollars worth of spending power, but one half of 1% of the wealth is owned by African-Americans within this country. So you have Oprah, we have Jay-Z, we have Robert Smith, we have, you know, recently Kanye West, Michael Jordan, we have hip-hop, music, things of that particular nature. So what are y'all complaining about? What 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 are you complaining about? Okay, sure. I mean, someone got you know shot by a police officer. Yeah, that's unfortunate, but that doesn't that's, that doesn't seemingly need to be a call to action to say that reparations should be paid. <clears throat> and I'm speaking from their standpoint because a thing that I heard today from a a podcast that I listened to was that. people don't want to learn history. People don't want to read. And so the way people learn about history is through film. So you have to show it to them, right? You have to show it to them. But obviously, if we're not in position to get big theatrical releases and things of that particular nature, then our history is going to continue to fall by the wayside, right? So they're not going to learn about it. So I say all that to say this. If we want to put it in a in a scope, if we want to if we, if, if we want to put things you know into into a particular graphic, Hispanics can say we have been discriminated against in this country. We've been referred to as wetbacks. Um, we've had our we've had individuals come over here and work and be paid wages that were well below wages that were paid to workers that were of black and white descent. Um, obviously, we had the, the cage situation. We've been vilified by um, former presidents speaking about individuals come over here bringing drugs and all those particular things like that, particular stereotypes. So we feel like that we need to take our own interests into consideration. We don't need to associate ourselves with so much so with the black struggle. One of the things that I feel like one of the main narratives that's going to probably start changing um, in the future with more Hispanics again, um, because this this is this is similar about African Americans being a permanent underclass. 
so I'm speaking about Asians, I'm speaking about Hispanics, is one of the things that we always see attributed together is Asian, not Asian, but Hispanic children as well as African-American children, from an educational standpoint, they kind of couple us together, right? But the thing about it is, is when we speak about the Hispanic community, I feel like I'm 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 of a certain age to where I've been able to watch Hispanics seemingly grow in population, obviously, and they are getting more political politically savvy because they understand that okay, we have to address these particular issues. Okay, our children are being mistreated. Okay, so we're gonna need resources, you know, so that we can get better schooling. Okay, we're gonna have to get resources so we can clean up our particular neighborhoods. Now, as they get a larger percentage of the population within this particular country, by default, maybe in certain instances, if blacks are sharing the same neighborhoods as Hispanics, even though I don't feel like blacks and Hispanics live together in such large numbers, I feel like we're seemingly segregated to an extent. They are going to make sure that their people are taken care of as they should. Because if you because as you grow as a population within this particular country, you're supposed to make sure that your people are in the best position to prosper. So we seemingly saw the first generations of wage getters. I just uh, just a personal story um, at a former job I had me and a Mexican guy. We were working for the same company. We just happened to be in the hotel room that night. And he was telling me a story about his father and how they would, you know, seemingly drive a truck. That's what we were doing, driving trucks. We drive trucks all night across uh, the Mexican border to the American border, delivering goods and services and stuff like that. And he talked about how that work ethic rubbed off on him. And obviously he's a, a naturalized citizen and that work ethic is still there. And so they are moving away from what we deem to be the worker class. And now they're moving. They're moving their way. They're moving their way back up. And one of the things that we've heard about um, Hispanics is that they get money and they send money back home, right? They send money back. They send money back home because obviously uh, the U.S. dollar has more value in Mexico, so they're able to get more. So obviously, you know that money could be used for a myriad of different things. Whether it could be to get someone over here across the border or whatever that particular situation is. So they're, they're going to be the majority minority. And so another thing that Dr. Anderson spoke about was that when we were the majority minority, we didn't have to go through anybody. We didn't have to, we didn't have to go to the Hispanic community or the Asian community to say, hey, I mean, obviously it would be good to get them on board and say, hey, man, you know, this, this is what's going on over here, man. Can, can, you know, can we, we got a, 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 a candidate you know, that's running and and we feel like that we're in the same boat together. We, we can do a lot, right? We can do a lot. We don't we don't have that moving forward. So now our candidates moving forward are going to have to bring forth our agenda in the black community, but also if they want to get elected, they're gonna have to acquiesce and speak on situations that affect Hispanics as well as Asians. Now, they Hispanics and Asians could opt to get um, their own 
you know, homegrown and say, no, we don't need a, a black candidate. You know, we, we got somebody. Because that was one of the things that I saw uh, some African-Americans doing was that, oh, we like what Andrew Yang is talking about. We're going to go we're going to go vote for Yang. I saw that. Right. So the, the, the dynamics are already changing. And it's just and again, it's just Asian. That could be, you know, seemingly a Hispanic candidate, um, you know, moving forward that could, you know, captivate, you know, things like that. And so Hispanics, you know, with them growing in population, obviously they're not just centralized in, in, in the areas that we would say that they're centralized in. They're not all centralized in Texas and California and Arizona, New Mexico and places like that. I've seen Hispanics in Chicago, Indiana. I travel a lot through this particular country and I see Hispanics in a lot of different places. So obviously, you know, that means that they are, you know, taxpaying citizens. I'm not going to stereotype taxpaying citizens. And they're going to look at it from a standpoint, okay, we got to get more political, right? So, again, the study I said that as far as eligible voters, they jumped 115%. Asians jumped 131%. African-Americans jumped 33%. So, one of the problems that I feel like is that that interview that Dr. Anderson did in 1995 I'm sure it didn't get a lot of play, right? I see because one of the things that I noticed is things that got that seemingly uh, people like to refer back to um, from from back then. You know, they they bring it up to this day, and I haven't seen anyone seemingly talk about that because one of the things I think that we as African Americans do, and this isn't a thing that affects all of us, but one of the things that we do is that sometimes we don't like to get the the truth. We like things to be sugarcoated. We don't want hard truth because sometimes we don't want to put in the work. Not saying this is a this this is something that um <clears throat> can be referred to as something that affects all African Americans, but a large segment of us, you know, are like that. So something that was spoken about twenty five years ago, I feel like if it got the light that it needed to get and maybe it could have gave us a sense of ambition, a sense of drive to say, okay, Dr. Anderson, uh, uh, a renowned scholar, a, a very accomplished scholar in his own right, I trust what he says. Okay, so let's put together some things that we need to do so that we can, we can, um, we can change this. You know, we can change it. But sadly, we didn't. And Dr. Amos Wilson spoke about this. Uh, as well, he didn't he didn't speak at he didn't speak on it to the same extent that Dr. Anderson spoke on it, but he spoke about it. Dr. Amos Wilson spoke about it too, and seemingly echoed the same things that blacks in America are going to be overlooked. And one of the things that Dr. Anderson spoke about was during the Clinton Clinton administration, not the Clinton, <laughs> the Nixon administration, was that. A, 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 a policy seemingly was enacted, the policy of benign neglect, which he so eloquently stated that anything of significance that African-Americans wanted, they were seemingly going to look over it and they were going to look for ways to empower other minority groups and seemingly overlook what it is that African-Americans want to do. So fast forward to 2021. We already talked about the uh, anti-Asian hate crime bill 
which seemingly is a significant piece of legislation. Again, like I said, some people in those in that comment section that I read felt that, you know, it it wasn't enough, and it 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 seemingly uh, piggybacked off of a piece of legislation that had uh, that had already been um, passed uh, in the past, right? So when we think about that. And we think about, again, what I'm titling this permanent underclass. What we would have to do is seemingly like tomorrow, you know, you seemingly have to African-Americans have to seemingly draw out a hundred year plan. We would seemingly have to stop cold turkey the way that we're operating. And probably it would take double the time that it took to get us here. So he made that announcement in 2000, not 2000, in 1995. So that was 26 years ago. So seemingly it would take 52 years in order to get back to the point that we were in 1995, right? So it's going to take a lot of, you know, diligence, a lot of effort to do something like that, to get back to where we were in 1995. But it would probably take in excess of 100 years to seemingly get back to where we need to be right so one of the things that i'm not gonna say it upset me i don't i don't i don't i don't feel like it didn't it didn't upset me but one of the things that i that i see that i feel like that narrative needs to to change or that narrative needs to go ahead and just die off is the narrative that was that that seemingly has been pushed uh for a long period of time which i feel like as the as the time goes by any time after 2013, I feel that that argument or that statement is going to get weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker is the fact that the black vote is so vitally important. So vitally important. And obviously, as other minority groups increase their population within this particular country, then that dilutes the value of the black vote. Because obviously, if you talked about that in two thousand and two, you know, two thousand and well, night, like I say, nineteen nineteen ninety, um, you know, the year two thousand. Then, and obviously, any time before that, you know, you may feel like, okay, yeah, the black vote is important, but if we're only going to go from two thousand and ten. We're 13.4% of the population, and we're projected to be 13% in 2040. And the Asians are going to go from 6% to 9%. Hispanics are going to go all the way from 19 all the way up to 30 Then how much, how important is the black vote moving forward? And another thing that I feel like that, 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 that bothers me, in 2021, I still see headlines that say, okay, this is the first black to do this. I'm like, oh, oh, man. Oh, man. Aside from the Europeans and the Native Americans, African-Americans have been on this on this land, on this particular soil, longer than, than any other group. Now, obviously, if you want to go back and, and speak about prior to the Louisiana Purchase, uh, you go ahead and do that. But I'm just seemingly, I want to specifically speak about uh, the building or the establishment of the these United States of America. So, that's another hindrance 
because seemingly since Asians and Hispanics are not going to be looking so much so into black history, then when they get a first to do something, they can look and say, well, dang, we ain't been here as long as y'all have. And we're already ascending up this particular ladder right here. So, obviously, if they're moving quicker than we are, based on period of time here within this particular country, then that's another blow to the psyche and the aura, the ability of African Americans within this particular country. So, um, I like to be a person that's solution-based in anything that I do, anything that I, you know, anything I do, anything that I say, but there is no short-term solution for something like this. It's not, um, it kind of goes back. It kind of makes you, you know, go back to, some people may agree with this. Some people don't may not agree with this. But again, this is my this is my thinking, and these are the individuals and the ideologies that kind of impact the way that I think. In the '60s, when African Americans had seemingly the power to move chess pieces on the board, should have been the time that building a nation within a nation should have commenced. Um, the ideology of the great Elijah Muhammad in which he stated that African Americans within his country or as he would say the so-called Negro in this country should get some land of their own you know in the south good land where we can grow food and, and we can do that and have a nation within a, within a nation because we probably we, we seemingly could be you know, better off. And I think when people hear that type of stuff, people automatically pity and say, okay, y'all going to be arch enemies. And that's not necessarily, that's not necessarily the truth right now. And I've done a podcast about it is that China and the U S are seemingly competing or engaging in a cold war right now. But that doesn't, that doesn't, that's not negating or stopping American citizens from going to China. Now, I'm, I'm not, I'm not speaking like at this particular moment with COVID, but I'm just, I'm just saying that hasn't stopped Americans from moving to China or, you know, Asia since we speak, you know, just China since we're speaking about that. It's not stopping them from moving to China and vice versa is not stopping uh, Chinese people from moving over to America, right? So that could have been the same principle. It didn't have to be hatred. You get treaties and you get, you know, trade agreements and all these particular different things like this worked out. And obviously, if African-Americans didn't want to seemingly live there and they wanted to move to other places, they had that ability. Same thing with white people. The only the only difference is you have a nation operating within a particular nation and you have things that are seemingly equal or as much as are much equal as they can be so it doesn't have to be a a hatred thing because you know it's not as in your face but we we are we are heavily segregated within this country now and we're supposed to be integrated 
The only thing that's integrated is seemingly certain um, certain things within this country. But from a larger standpoint, we are still a very, very segregated country. So I don't think anything would have been different. The only thing that would have been different is the economic boost that it could have done. And a lot of the things that we see now that are transpiring, um, they probably wouldn't be um, at the height that they are now. We wouldn't still be probably talking about police brutality. We probably still wouldn't be talking about um, African-American children um, not doing as well as their white and Asian counterparts as it pertains to education. But again, that was many, many moons ago. And the cards on the table weren't aligned to go through with that. So we just have to deal with it the way that we have. Now, obviously, again, like I say, a permanent underclass, you know, that doesn't mean that things aren't going to, that's not, that doesn't mean, I don't think that, doesn't mean that um, we're going to be, people are going to go around and, and look to eliminate, you know, African Americans or anything of that particular nature. It just means that from a political standpoint, or or as I like to say, from a real estate standpoint, and I'm not, and I'm not just talking about physical real estate, but I'm talking about political real estate, economic real estate, and even art, you know, creative real estate, that our share of it is going to get smaller because other groups are going to be looking for legislation and that real estate to help benefit the communities that they are from because their constituency their 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 people are going to seemingly hold them a lot more accountable than we hold seemingly our politicians and that's going to go for the Hispanics uh, as well as the Asians so <laughs> you may say dang man this is this is just doom and gloom again like I said it's, it's, it's to your uh, interpretation like I said what I want what the, what the thing that I want to do with this particular episode is I just want to invoke um, thought I want to I want to see what the <clears throat> the mindset is gonna be are you gonna look at it and say oh well this you know it is what it is or or is it something inside of you that's gonna say well you know what man yeah maybe it's something me that I can do to to help you know, move things forward or try to be um, more assertive because some people feel that African-Americans within this particular country, by overwhelmingly casting our vote for one one particular political party, that we seemingly help dig our own grave. So there are some that feel that way. Um... I don't know. I'm not as I'm not as involved in politics as I should be, so I can, I'm not I'm not ready to stand on that and say that. Probably wouldn't say it, you know. But there are some that's out there that do think that. So to each his own. But anyway, <clears throat> there's another episode of the Paradigm One Thirty Two podcast. I'll be back to you again next week. Peace. <laughs>